We're tackling a wide range of questions today. Oh, you'll love it. It's time for The Line of Fire with your host, activist, author, international speaker, and theologian, Dr. Michael Brown, your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Michael Brown is the director of the Coalition of Conscience and president of Fire School of Ministry. Get into The Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. That's 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Thanks, friends, for joining us on The Line of Fire. Michael Brown here. It is Friday, which means you've got questions, we've got answers. But as we do periodically for schedule reasons or to give opportunity to folks in other platforms, we won't be taking calls today. Oh, I know, the corporate sigh. We'll be taking calls today. But come on, let's be fair. You know, on lots of other days, on Days that aren't Friday, we open up the phones for your questions of every kind. So we do our best to make up for it. But today I posted a few questions on Twitter for response. I did this a few days ago, so don't post now. But I'm going to be responding to some questions, some challenges that were posted on Twitter. So I asked this question. I said, I'm going to devote some airtime to answering areas of disagreement you have with me, biblical, theological, cultural, or political Post your questions and concerns here, and I'll answer as many as I can probably on next Friday's show, which is, of course, today. So I've got a few people that uh, posted some questions or concerns, so uh, not necessarily disagreement with me, some disagreement, but I'm going to respond to them here. Uh, And I think, again, as always, you'll find it helpful and enlightening. Phil asked this, my pastors believe Christians can be possessed and need deliverance. I disagree Due to how can the Holy Spirit dwell with evil spirits? What should I do? Okay. I would say first, I would want to understand exactly what they teach and believe. For example, I have no problem with the idea of Christians needing deliverance if they've opened the door to the enemy. In Jesus, we are free. In Jesus, we are overcomers. In Jesus, we have died to sin and we live to God. In Jesus, we have authority over all the power of Satan. That's all true. It's also true that we can become bound and enslaved even as believers. Let me just ask you a question. In the natural, is it possible for a Christian, a born-again, spirit-indwelt follower of Jesus, is it possible for that person to have a physical addiction? Is it possible for them to have a drug addiction or an alcohol addiction? The answer would be obviously yes. Is it possible for them to have some other type of addiction, like pornography, which is physical as well, but, but is one that affects you differently? The answer would be yes. Is it possible for that person to get bound up, say, have what we call a soul tie with someone they're not married to? Maybe they're a married person and they have this emotional involvement with someone they're not married to and becomes lustful as well and they haven't had physical contact, but they're, they're like bound. Is it possible? Yeah. So in the same way, it's possible for a Christian to open themselves up to the enemy and they become enslaved to fear, to lies, to panic to depression, to other things that do not have a physiological explanation. In other words, it's not something that there's a a disorder in in the chemicals in the brain or something like that or some brain trauma and it's causing this. No, it's, it's actually something spiritual that's going on that has them bound and they need to be set free. Now, in theory, if they take hold of truths of scripture and who they are in the Lord, they can simply say no to those things in Jesus' name and find freedom. But often people find themselves so bound, so enslaved, they've let the enemy in so far, they've gone so far in their own direction as believers that they need to be set free. So 
if this is what your pastors are teaching and just the semantics are a little different, I wouldn't get overly concerned with it. What about the idea of demons dwelling where the Holy Spirit dwells? Now, here, once again, let me ask you an activ- a question. Uh, according to Paul in 1 Corinthians 3, the church, the body of believers, we are the corporate temple of the Lord. Agreed? Individually, our bodies, physical bodies, are the temple of the Lord, 1 Corinthians 6. But corporately, 1 Corinthians 3, Ephesians 2, 1 Peter 2, we are corporately the body of the Messiah, and we are corporately the temple of the Lord. So the Holy Spirit corporately indwells the church. Are there things happening within the body that are demonic, that are ugly, that are satanic? And the answer is yes. And even when you gather in a church service, are there people that could be demonized, don't know the Lord, full of the devil, sitting there right next to you? Okay, that's a building, right. But but what about in the corporate body? What about if some believers are living in sin and living in disobedience? Are they opening the door to the, to the devil? Jesus asked in 1 Corinthians 6, will you take your body and join it to have a prostitute if you're one in spirit with the Lord? So even in that sense, there can be demonic activity side by side with the Holy Spirit. Deceptive work, right? Satan coming as a deceiver. Counterfeit miracles, counterfeit prophecies. That can be happening. So in terms of the inner sanctum of our spiritual being, where the Holy Spirit dwells, can demons dwell there as well? Not to my knowledge, not to my understanding. The answer is no. So I would say in that regard, a true Christian cannot be demon possessed, but rather demon oppressed. But others would say that you're making semantic divisions that the Bible doesn't make because the Bible just talks about being demonized and demonization can have different levels. It can be total, it can be partial. So using that terminology, can a Christian be totally demonized? Obviously not. If they were, they wouldn't belong to the Lord and the Holy Spirit wouldn't be dwelling in them. But can they be partially demonized? Can they give certain areas of their life over to satanic influence and activity? The answer would be yes. So I would find out exactly what they believe. And if it's something closer to what I'm saying, it's not a, not a reason for concern. If it is a major teaching point, a major doctrine, and every week they're trying to get Christians delivered from demons, and you come in and every week you're going to, uh, I mean, look, for, forgive the, the terminology, but the old barf bag thing that, yeah, I mean, you bring a brown bag to church with you because you're going to vomit out demons. There are churches that actually practice stuff like that. I'd get out of there in a hurry. I get out of there quickly. But otherwise, if it's more a matter of semantics and the potential, the possibility that a Christian could be demonized, then that wouldn't be that big an issue for me if all the other practices and teaching were sound. All right, uh, David, I don't agree that Catholics can have salvation, especially because they go back into an institution that practices idolatry and worse. Either they're a Catholic, no salvation, Leave the Catholic Church for good and have salvation. Does a dog return to its vomit? Uh, David, the, the church in which I came to faith, we've pretty much seen things the same way. Italian Pentecostal, almost all the people in that church, or the older ones, the founding members, all came out of Catholicism. And many of the women were, were more devout than their husbands, and, and they had collections of statues to the saints that were very, very precious to them. And when they got saved, they, they destroyed them. They took them in their backyard, they smashed them, they destroyed them, and that was very important for them to do. And if we knew someone that was Catholic and claimed to be saved, we, we deeply questioned it. My position would be this, that there are things within Catholicism that are absolutely false and dangerous doctrines, the veneration of Mary perhaps being the most serious 
or along with that, the nature of the celebration of Mass as if Jesus was suffering again and again. There are other things that I strongly differ with, such as purgatory, but that would be lower on the list of, of the biggest concerns, the veneration of the saints, of views of the Pope. Uh, obviously, these are things I categorically differ with, a teaching that would uh, open the door for salvation by works. I say open the door because you're going to have different nuances of understanding. All that being said, I, to the best of my knowledge, know Catholics who are true Christians who are saved, and they're still within the Catholic Church, and Catholic charismatics that seem to be Bible-based in their theology, and either they have a different view of the things I'm talking about, in which case you could say, well, they haven't really fully embraced the Orthodox Catholic view, or they look at things differently and say, no, I'm misinterpreting what Catholicism says. Either way, we're not that far apart in the things that we believe. So that, to me, would be someone being saved despite the teachings of the Catholic Church as opposed to because of. When I say despite, I mean the teachings of the Catholic Church that add to Scripture and go beyond what's written in Scripture. You may be a Catholic listener. If that offends you, I certainly apologize. But I don't mean it to be offensive. I simply mean it to be true. If, if I'm speaking truth and the truth offended you, I, I don't apologize. If I misunderstood you or misrepresented you, I apologize for that. But if I spoke truth and that truth offended you, I don't apologize for that. I have Catholic colleagues that I work with that, to my knowledge, are committed Christians and hold to the authority of Scripture and salvation only through the blood of Jesus and by grace and, and worship Jesus alone as Lord and whatever the views are of Mary or other things or not damnable differences. And then uh, I know some folks that have, say, were born-again evangelicals and have converted to Catholicism, and now they have entered the true church, and now they're, they're posting veneration to Mary. That deeply concerns me. To me, they have gone away from the truth of the gospel in doing so. All right. Um, Susan, I heard you skirt this question before. So are you old earth creationist or young earth creationist? We know or should know that this isn't a salvation issue, so why not answer it? Thanks. I have answered it, Susan. I'm not skirting it. Based on Scripture, I'm not sure if, if the earth is old or the earth is young. You say, what about science? I'm not a scientist. I'm going to have a young earth creationist on in a week or two to present some of his viewpoint. I've had mainly old earth creationists on over the years, but that's only because they've reached out to me more and, hey, I've got this book coming out or the subject you want to have us on. Gladly have young earth creationists on if they reached out more and they were credible leaders as, as are the ones that have reached out to me. So as I read scripture, I could make an argument either way, okay? I could make a young earth argument. I could make an old earth argument using scripture alone. As to the scientific debate, obviously the vast majority of scientists look at an old earth versus a young earth, but then I've had uh, younger scientists like Jonathan Sarfatian raising compelling arguments from their viewpoint, and I don't have the scientific expertise. Here, here's the deal, all right? Just like I don't have the scientific expertise to debate Richard Dawkins, I debate him on scripture. I debate him on theology. I debate him on spiritual issues and moral issues. But to debate him on science, it's a joke. I mean, he's, he's a, a scientific scholar, and, and I know very little science. I'll present my arguments, my great arguments, so that within seconds he'll demolish them and then I don't have a comeback. Now, if, if I was in that field, if I, if, if I was a John Lennox, or if I was a William Lane Craig, or if I was a Stephen Meyer, or if I was a Jay Richards, if I was one of those guys, Dawkins would come with his argument and boom, I'd demolish him, okay? But I don't have the scientific knowledge 
to debate an evolutionist, except for basic points. But then when they get into nitty gritty, I, I don't have the ability to answer. All right. The same way, and I'm not comparing an evolutionist to a young earth uh, scientist, but a young earth scientist will raise various issues. And I don't have the know-how scientifically to rebut that person and to tell them why they're wrong. So I stay in this area, in, in my place of expertise, which is scripture and understanding scripture, and in particular dealing with Old Testament Hebrew language. And I could make an argument for young earth or old. So I'm not skirting anything, skirting nothing. I just don't have a firm opinion either way. And everyone that has listened to me, watched me, read me, followed me for years, you know I have no problem putting out controversial opinions. I just don't have one to put out here. We'll say this, the purpose of Genesis 1 is to teach us about God more than to teach us about science. It doesn't mean it's scientifically wrong. It means the emphasis is to teach us about God and his ways. All right, we'll be right back. God of light, hear our cry. It's the Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Thanks, friends, for joining us on the special Friday edition of The Line of Fire. I'm not taking your calls today, but I am answering questions that were posted a few days back on our Twitter account. Now, if you don't follow me on Twitter, it's real easy. It's DR, like Dr. Michael L. Brown, but make sure you get the middle initial. So the two L's in the middle, DR Michael L. Brown. Now, so you can follow me on Twitter if that's where you like to go and, and interact. Facebook. If you don't follow us on Facebook, that's Ask Dr. Brown, A-S-K-D-R Brown, just like our YouTube channel, A-S-K-D-R Brown, or our website where we've got thousands of free resources waiting for you and other classes you can uh, take and, and enroll in Fire School of Ministry, our, our full online school. Uh, that's AskDrBrown.org, A-S-K-D-R Brown.org. But when you go there, take a minute, you go to AskDrBrown.org, take a minute, or less, and you'll see free ebook plus weekly updates. Put your email address there. So if you don't get our weekly emails, what this means is normally every Monday, you'll hear from us with a special announcement, could be a testimony, could be a, a new book release, a great resource offer we've put together. On Wednesday, we'll send you all the new videos we put up over the last week. I don't mean my daily radio show, but special videos, key topics where I'll, 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 I'll weigh in, political issues, things like that, cultural issues, Bible Q&A. Boom, there it is. And then on Friday, all the articles, and only five articles a week. Say, so how do you keep track of that? Simple. Just get on the email list, and then you can look, review this, look at this, check this out. There'll be a summary of everything for you. And when you sign up, you get a free ebook, a really neat eye-opening ebook. So join us, askdrbrown.org. Okay, back to the Twitter questions. These were where I asked folks uh, to post disagreements that they had with me or challenges or concerns. Rick, how can you keep from giving a strong warning against Bethel with the blatant endorsement of witchcraft in the form of books like Physics of Heaven, which I've sent you videos about numerous times, with the popularity of Bethel, this needs to be sharply addressed there, bringing people into spiritual bondage. Okay, uh, Rick, with all respect, we get hundreds of thousands of comments, of requests, of emails, of posts. Uh, people will send me things, hey, check out this video, it's three hours long. So as much as we appreciate you sending us things, if you wanted my personal response 
to each thing that you sent me and I put you in the order of which it was sent, I would, I would die before I got to answer you. In other words, I'm 64 now. If I stopped and went through every request, Dr. Brown, please look at this. Please review this. Would you please read this book? Give your input. Would you please watch this video and give your thoughts? Which I wish I, wish I could do, okay? And I've, if I put you in the list of everyone that had sent me something and I took the time to watch it, even if I lived to be 100 and was in great shape at 100, I don't think I'd be able to get to what you sent yet. So please don't take it personally. Just understand that we do our best to answer questions. We, we actually have team members that that's their job. A, a PhD in New Testament, a PhD in Old Testament, one fluent in Greek, one fluent in Hebrew, all right? And they assist me with questions that are sent into our website. So we're doing that. We're doing the radio show. I'm answering as many things as I can on social media. But please understand, I can't respond to everything. Uh, as for Bethel giving a blatant endorsement of witchcraft, I don't know of them doing that at all. I've interacted privately with Bill Johnson and Chris Valentin about areas of differences that we have. As far as I know, on the majors, we agree. On the basics of the gospel, we agree. And then we have other areas, either in practice or theology, where we have some disagreement. And I've reached out to them privately and dialogue privately. I have not read The Physics of Heaven. I did buy it because some people were concerned about it. I bought it and, and I started to go through it, but I barely touched it. So I can't comment because I haven't seen what's in it yet. But is it blatant witchcraft? To my knowledge, no. Is it mainstream Bethel teaching? I don't know. I don't know. It's not that I am unconcerned, but where things have come to me that raise concern, for example, the statement that was made by the organization within Bethel that's helping people come out of homosexuality. There was, there was a social media post that had some real error in it or was reaching out to people in a way that really opened the door to, to error and wrong understanding. I immediately reached out to one of the pastors that I knew there. He immediately said that's going to be corrected. I have since been in direct contact with folks involved in that ministry. They assured me that a major statement will be made that will clarify and that will be thoroughly biblical. So I'm waiting for that. I asked Bill Johnson to read select chapters in Hyper Grace and give me his feedback. And he was step for step, point for point with me in agreement on the points. So that's what I know. I've interacted with Chris Valentin at times about certain differences. So, so, so here's the deal. There's certainly things within Bethel teaching and practice that I differ with. As far as the main message that's preached, the gospel, as far as I understand, it's the Orthodox gospel message. You say, hang on, wait a second. Doesn't Bill Johnson teach that if you don't say it's always God's will to heal the sick, it's a false gospel, something like that? He might. I, I disagree. shouldn't use the term false gospel anymore then when, when Bill says that it's always God's will to heal, that that's false gospel. And by the way, my understanding of healing is much closer to Bill's than to a cessationist. I'm much more with him in terms of that God's disposition is to heal and that Jesus is the will of God in action. If you've seen Jesus, you've seen the Father, and Jesus didn't go around making sick. He, making people sick, he went around healing them, all right? As to the notion that Bill teaches that Jesus ceased to be God on earth— I asked him about that plainly on my radio show. I've looked at statements that he made that allegedly said that. I don't see him saying that. If he did, I plainly confront it. But in any case, if I have more time to get into Fiscus of Heaven and I see some real issues with it, I'll contact the Bethel folks privately. And if I don't get a good response, I'll address it publicly. That's best I can do. All right. So Rick, I'm not minimizing your concerns. I am differing with your idea that Bethel is giving a blatant endorsement of witchcraft. All right, if your concerns are right, trust me, 
Trust me, Rick, I will shout it from the rooftops. I will shout it from the rooftops, all right? Uh, let's see here. Um, John, in Genesis 28, 3, 35, 11, and 48, 2, Jacob, Israel, is said to properly be a company, kahal, of people's nations. Doesn't this show that the true Israel, the Israel of God, was always defined by faith, not ethnicity, and so is the church? Okay, great question. Number one, the Israel of God is only mentioned once, and that's Galatians 6.16. It clearly is not speaking of Gentiles there. The most natural grammatical reading of the Greek is that Paul is wishing peace and blessing to all who follow the rule of what he has laid out, that Gentiles do not have to become Jews in order to be saved. They don't need to be circumcised and obey the law of Moses in order to be saved. Peace and mercy to all who follow this rule and who recognize that circumcision in and of itself does you no spiritual good. In and of itself, it doesn't save you. It doesn't damn you. Salvation, damnation comes through accepting or rejecting Jesus, the Messiah of Israel. And then, and not only peace and mercy, you follow this rule, but also upon the Israel of God. The, the Greek chi, the most natural reading there is I, excuse me, is and rather than even. So peace and mercy on all the fathers, Gentile believers, and the Israel of God. Hey, in other words, Paul's saying, I'm not trashing. I'm not trashing Jewish believers. I'm not trashing others who are Jewish believers and, and who live Jewish lives in the Messiah. I'm not trashing them, all right? You say, no, 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 he's referring to the Gentile Christians there as the Israel of God. Then he just undid his whole letter. He just undid the whole thing by saying that you don't need to make these distinctions in the Messiah. You don't need to, Gentiles don't need to become Jews, so you'll see the vast majority of translations and interpreters understand that Israel of God is not a term for the church as a holder. The ecclesia, the larger assembly of Messiah, is Jew and Gentile in Jesus. And what joins us is being in him. All right? So being a Jew, being a Gentile doesn't give you better, higher status, lower status, just like male-female. Are there male-female distinctions in the body still? Of course there are. Paul teaches men. Paul teaches women. Paul teaches husbands. Paul teaches wives. And you go to your local congregation, you got men's rooms and women's rooms in the building and men's meetings and women's meetings because there are male-female distinctions. Yet in Jesus, there's no male or female. What does that mean? It doesn't mean those distinctions go away. It means that there is no class distinction, no caste distinction, as we've explained many a time. In the Messiah, we're one, and yet the distinctions remain. Same with Jew and Gentile. In the Messiah, we're one, and yet distinctives remain. Right? That's part of our unity, namely our diversity. But in these texts that you mentioned, where Israel is going to be a company of, of nations, it's really talking about the 12 tribes and their expansion. It's talking about how these now become kingdoms of peoples. If you want to say, well, there's a spiritual application, a larger spiritual application that, that is referring to Gentiles as well. And okay, is the church the, the Jacob of God, the new Jacob? Say, no, well, there you have it. Jake, this is about Jacob slash Israel, okay? And, and when Paul speaks of all Israel being saved in Romans 11, it's in contradistinction to the fullness of the Gentiles, and it's in fulfillment of the prophecy of the Redeemer coming for those who turn away from ungodliness in Jacob, all right? So the church, the ecclesia, is saved Jews and saved Gentiles. Now, the same word can be used for the people of Israel as the assembly of God in the Old Testament, but that also included then who? Gentiles that were living among Israel under the law that had become part of the nation. Otherwise, they weren't considered part of that kahal, part of that ecclesia. 
Now the borders have expanded and that the vast majority of believers are Gentile. So in that sense, the ecclesia has expanded, but Israel remains Israel. Jewish people remain Jewish people. Um, let's just see here. I tell you what, there's one more that I'm going to get to in this category, and then I'm going to go over to another category on Twitter where I ask folks for their toughest apologetics questions, things they run into, challenges to the faith. Hey, are you standing with us on Patreon? Are you one of our supporters? Our goal is to get to 1,000 Patreon supporters. We're somewhere probably around 190 now. But if you haven't stood with us, just pennies a day, what, what an opportunity to be a blessing to us and allow us to be a blessing to many, many others. You get two bonus videos a week, $10 or more per month. You help us make a big difference in many lives. Go to patreon.com forward slash Brown. patreon.com forward slash Dr. Brown. We'll be right back. It's the Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Get into the Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Thanks for joining us on the special Friday edition. If you've got questions, we've got answers. Before you pick up the phone to call, I solicited questions under a number of categories on Twitter for today's broadcast. So I already did this. I solicited the questions at the end of last week and now answering them this week. So don't post now, but this is one of those days we are doing this for scheduling purposes and to allow folks that maybe can't call in to raise some objections or, or post questions. So uh, I think you'll find the ones we covered today really interesting. I had first asked for areas of disagreement and only got a few people that, that wrote there, but I, I want to take a moment and respond to those. And then I asked folks for their toughest apologetics questions. So I, I want to go over to those next, all right? Um, Andrew, how about how you can approve of a false teacher and clearly disqualified men for ministry like Todd Bentley? Clearly, you lack discerning if you think a person who is drunk and having an affair is qualified for ministry, but no, you will not address it as it could hurt your platform. Uh, Andrew, that's a lie. Now, I, I did my best to address you on Twitter as opposed to publicly in this way. I did my best to say, you post this, let's, let's go back and forth nothing to dialogue about privately, but when you refused to retract this and kept accusing me of avoiding it and challenged my integrity and said, okay, you're going to skirt this and I'm okay. So in answer to your very explicit request, I will not skirt this, sir. You asked for it, you got it. You just lied about me on Twitter. You bore forth false witness. All right. And as a fellow believer, that's a sin. So that really concerns me when folks are so free to do this. So here's the deal. If you're not aware I'm overseeing a panel that has been charged by other leaders. Other leaders have come to me, all right, and said there's a flurry of allegations, dozens and dozens and dozens of allegations, new allegations against Todd Bentley, and they need to be investigated. There needs to be accountability. Would you lead a panel to investigate that? Would you be part of that panel? I said, I can't be part of the panel because I have already come out against Todd Bentley's ministry for many years. So it's not right for me to be on the panel because I'm already prejudiced in that regard. They said, well, could you lead a panel? Could be, And these are some of, like, for example, a supporter of Todd said, Dr. Brown, Mike, you'd be a perfect one because you've set the bar high because you've, you've had issues with his ministry in the past. 
And and so you'd be the right one to oversee it. No one's going to accuse you then. Well, I get accused of everything, but no one's going to think you're you know you're biased towards him because you, you've opposed his ministry since he divorced his wife and remarried and said it's not valid. He shouldn't be in ministry. So I can oversee a panel. I can guarantee that I'll operate ethically. I can guarantee that I'll call people to investigate facts and look at information. So we we put together a panel of five highly esteemed, nationally recognized leaders, some with international ministries. Uh, we uh, hired an investigator with over 20 years of police experience and some very job-related, specific investigative background in his life. Uh, he spent countless hours, weeks meeting with people, asking questions, trying to get to the bottom of things, all right, so everything can be done righteously. Uh, he's just has a few last things to wrap up, and then things will be submitted to the panel for their response. But I am not on the panel because I have already made public statements. So the moment it was announced that Todd had left his wife and had remarried uh, in, in, what, over 10 years ago, we made a public statement to our entire church community, and I met with Rick Joyner, uh, wrote to him, explained plainly why I differed with that. So that, that's number one. In my book, Authentic Fire, which is my response to John MacArthur's Strange Fire, I noted explicitly that I had journaled during the Lakeland outpouring that this was a disaster waiting to happen. I expressed plainly there my differences when Todd was publicly, we, you know, we call it sadly the coronation night, you know, in, in a sarcastic way. Um, I, I publicly wrote about that and, and spoke of my plain differences there, all right? And then when all of this surfaced, I explained that the reason I wasn't making a new statement about the allegations was because I'd opposed the ministry for 10 years. So the fact, Andrew, that you may not be aware of this, I am I supposed to email each person in the world privately and say, I want to make sure you heard statements that I've made, okay? But I've been vocal. I've, what I've been asked about on the radio for years, for years, by critics even calling it. I've made public, plain statements. So it, it just troubles me when someone who leads a ministry or is a spokesperson or does discernment work, whatever it is, that they so freely post falsehoods. That's unethical. And, and then when I respond, say, that's false. I do not support the ministry. I did not support the ministry. And, and then my integrity is challenged. See, that doesn't upset me for me. I'm fine. I'm, I'm, I'm here. I'm talking to everybody. It upsets me for division in the body. It upsets me because people are sniping at each other as opposed to coming together for the common good. Now, if you say, well, Brown, I differ with you because you're a charismatic. Great. Let's discuss that. Give me a call. We've had, we've had cessationist call-in days where people call in and give their best arguments why they don't believe in the gifts, sign gifts for today. Great. Let's have that discussion. I disagree with you because you stand with the modern state of Israel. Great. Let's have that discussion. Fair enough. No problem. Let's do it. I think you're wrong about age of the earth. I think you need to be dogmatic one way or the other. Great. Fine. Let's have that discussion. Dr. Brown, I think you're wrong. I believe there is a pre-trib rapture. Or I think you're wrong in expecting a millennial kingdom. Or fine, wonderful. Let's have that discussion. Mike, I think you're off on Calvinism. You need to embrace Calvinism. This is what scripture says. Oh, great. Let's have that discussion. Perfect. Differ with me on a thousand different points. That's perfectly fine. But don't openly post falsehoods. And then when you're corrected, 
Stand by them, stand by them, stand by them. That's what troubles me. And that's why, I don't, I don't know this gentleman at all, but that's why there's some critics just don't deal with anymore. Again, don't know this man personally here at all, but they're critics I, I simply don't deal with. I've reached out to privately. They have my phone number. We're supposed to talk by phone. Doesn't happen. We're supposed to talk by email. Doesn't happen. I've offered them dialogue discussion. You say, well, there's one guy you backed out of debating. Him. Yeah, when he was publicly dishonest and wouldn't retract things. I said, no, I'm not going to debate you now. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to dignify you if, if you publicly post falsehoods and then I correct you privately and ask you to correct them and you refuse to do it and you blast me falsely without even reaching out when you have my personal contact info. Nah, not going to give a platform to someone that unethical. Now, if it was a rank unbeliever that was known for, for being diabolical and deceptive, and I had the opportunity to publicly expose them so I knew who I'm dealing with and everyone understands what's going on here. You know, maybe it's some God-mocking, hostile, Satanist, atheist, but someone who has a lot of standing, you know, and a big following, and they're posting lies about me day and night. But I publicly debate them to expose them. I might do that. But if someone's claiming to be a brother or a sister and is acting unethically, no, won't give them the platform or the time of day. Act ethically. Then we'll talk. So, friends, I've taken time on this because the issue of bearing false witness is of great concern to me. This is one of the Ten Commandments. And when people just entrench themselves more deeply, rather than humble themselves, say, hey, my bad. Let me just tell you this. I've blown it. I've made mistakes. I've said and done things I shouldn't. I've humbled myself. I've gone to people. I've received forgiveness from them and from God. And we go on and, and all is well. And all the time, people do that to me. They sin against me. They say something. They misrepresent something. They come with an apology. They get it instantly. And I now become closer with them through that. And I now respect them more because of their humility. And in point of fact, there are things that have happened that I, I totally, I completely, totally forgot they ever happened. You know what I'm saying? Because I forgive from the heart. It's like, oh, that's right. You did that to me years ago. It's like, whatever. Forgive him, man. Just the way that I try to forgive the way the Lord forgives. But the lack of integrity and humility, oh, that, that concerns me. All right. Let's, um, let's go to another set of questions here. And let's see. Uh, ah, okay. Ask for some Jewish-related questions. And let's see. Troy, do modern Jews still look for the return of Elijah in Malachi 4-5, and do they think he'll come before the Messiah? Some Christians also believe Elijah will return as one of the two witnesses. Yes, traditional Jews do believe in the literal coming of, the, uh, of Elijah and that he will set, um, he will clarify legal questions. What's unclean, what's clean? And, and who's really descended from this and who's not, you know, legitimate and things like that. Yeah, that, that he will come as a forerunner of the Messiah. And when you have a Passover, say to the Passover meal, you always leave a chair open symbolically for Elijah. Yeah, uh, for his spiritual presence, but you leave it open symbolically for him. So yes, traditional Jews do expect a, a, a literal Elijah uh, to come before the Messiah. Uh, Ezra, the Talmud has an explanation for the greater glory of the rebuilt temple regarding Haggai 2.9, but is there any explanation of the second part of the prophecy? In this place, I will grant peace. To my knowledge, sir, the Talmudic passage 
that deals with this does not deal with that part. The, the, the question is, how can the glory of the second temple be greater than the glory of the first temple? So it's in duration or it's in size, and you know that's what's being discussed, because it obviously wasn't greater glory in terms of the presence of God, unless, of course, the Messiah came with the presence of God and sent the Spirit to that very place. Aha, uh-huh. that would be the answer. But as I just reviewed it earlier, I do not see any reference to this place I'll grant peace. How is it explained in some of the rabbinic commentaries? Well, uh, Radak, Rabbi David Kimchi, his answer is that even though there were many wars during the Second Temple period, that through long stretches of times, there was peace in the land. That's the explanation. Um, Jeff has a couple why are Psalm 22, Isaiah 53, etc., considered forbidden chapters, skipped over in reading? Well, they're, they're not. They're not considered a forbidden chapter. Psalm 22 is not considered forbidden chapter. Isaiah 53 is not considered a forbidden chapter. However, however, in the weekly synagogue readings, which are selective, Isaiah 53 is skipped. So if it's not part of the weekly synagogue readings and it's not part of daily prayers— and there are traditional Jews who pray through the Psalms regularly. Uh, some even pray the entire book of Psalms every day, if you can imagine that. Uh, so Psalm 22 is part of that. But as to other words of Scripture, a traditional Jew does not read through the Bible the way a Christian does. They read through the five books of Moses, select other passages. They pray many other passages in daily prayer. And then and then uh, there are extra readings in the synagogues and, and high holy days and things like that. Isaiah 53 is skipped. Is it skipped because of the Christian interpretation of it? Some say yes. Others say no, it just wasn't part of those that extra synagogue readings that were included. But if a traditional Jew is studying through Scripture, it has all the rabbinic commentaries, it's all there. So many traditional Jews are not familiar with it, but it's part of the Bible with all the commentaries on it. It's not considered forbidden in that sense. It's the Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown, your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. All right, I am responding to questions that I solicited from you on Twitter the end of last week. Michael Brown, delighted to be with you, but not taking your calls. Okay, one more question from Jeff. Do the Orthodox, ultra and otherwise, really believe that the oral traditions, Talmud, etc., are more important and are above the Bible, the Word of God? No and yes. By no, I mean that there is a distinction in rabbinic thinking between the, the law as written and oral tradition. You have what's called Midoraita and Midorabanan, that which is from the, the written law and that which is from the rabbis. All right, And if you ask which is the holiest of all, for example, a traditional Jew, a very, very orthodox Jew, if they came in a room and you had, you know, uh, rabbinic books. They say, you know, a, a volume from the Talmud. It's 20, 20 volumes as normally printed. But you had a volume from the Talmud, right? And then you had on top of it a newspaper and a comic book. They'd like, whoa, they'd want to shuffle that and move those away and have the, the, the Talmud there. Uh, if you had, if you had some modern Jewish author on top of the Talmud, you know, they, they would switch it, right? Because you, you want to put that which is considered the holiest on top and not pile things on top of it. If you're very, very traditional, okay? Well, the Bible would be on top of the Talmud, all right? The Bible would be on top of the Talmud. So in that sense, there is a distinction. However, the reason I say no and yes, 
The reason for the distinction is the view would be that God did give an oral law to Moses on Mount Sinai, which is just as binding as what is written, and in fact is the explanation and interpretation and expansion of what is written, and that without the words of the sages, you cannot understand the words of the scripture. So even though on the one hand, the final, the ultimate authority is what is written, and everything is subservient to that, we are also told that something equally authoritative has been passed down orally, and that even the rabbinic developments, without that, you could not understand the scripture. So in that sense, it takes on a greater role because we're told that, for example, the death penalty on the Sabbath, don't work on the Sabbath, that the, the, the written Torah never tells us what work is. We need the Talmud, the rabbinic tradition, to tell us what work is. And, and therefore, without that, you won't know God's heart, God's mind, God's plan. So even though what's written is the highest authority, the interpretation, explanation of what's written is considered to be the essential key to understanding it. Hence my no and yes answer. If you want to really get into depth on it, get volume five of my series, Answering Jewish Objections to Jesus. Volume five, Answering Jewish Objections to Jesus. It's now available on Logos, by the way, as well. So you can get the print edition, the ebook, or you can get it uh, digitally on Logos. So Answering Jewish Objections to Jesus, volume five. Daniel this probably isn't a question for the show, but is there a book on answering Christian objections to Israel, the Jewish people, and the Tanakh? Um, actually, I'm hoping one day to write a book on answering Christian objections to Israel. Uh, I'm, I'm hoping to do that. So those that consider Christian Zionism to be an oxymoron and those who don't believe the modern state of Israel should be supported by Christians or is connected to Bible prophecy and things like that. Uh, now, uh, my book, Our Hands Are Stained With Blood, the new edition just came out in September, uh, is vastly important in terms of some of the theological issues and some church history. That's very important. And uh, some Christian objections to Tanakh, yes, absolutely, I did... I did uh, address that in Hyper Grace. I have a couple of chapters in Hyper Grace dealing with Christian rejection of the Old Testament. So you'll find information there. So Hyper Grace, or Hands Just Stand With Blood, those books will be helpful to you. Tom, who was the first Messianic Jew? Paul, Peter, all 11 disciples. Why do Messianic Jews care so much about their Judaism? Not asking that question, assuming they shouldn't care about their Judaism, just genuinely curious. It seems like Paul really felt betrayed by his upbringing and repented wholeheartedly from his legalistic, pharisaical, hard-hearted Judaism. All right, a few things. That first Messianic Jews, yeah, all the first believers were Messianic Jews. They were Jews who believed in Jesus. So all the first followers of Yeshua were Messianic Jews. Yeah, Jews who believed in the Messiah. And they never stopped being Jewish. Paul still referred to himself as the seed of uh, of, of of Israel, you know, Israel of, of Israelites and seed of Benjamin. But he didn't boast about that. At one point in his life, he boasted about his lineage. He boasted about his heritage as if that made him something special. No, now he renounced all such claims to being special because of that or being righteous by his observance of the law and said instead, no, I, I renounce all that and find my righteousness alone in the righteousness of the Messiah and it changed life through him. At the same time, when he stood before the Sanhedrin in Acts 23, he said, I'm a Pharisee. Notice that's still how he lived. But he, he still lived as a Jewish man, and he still kept certain Jewish traditions. But his, his source of righteousness, his source of spiritual identity was different. So for a Messianic Jew, they're just following the footsteps of Christians 
Jewish followers of Jesus who lived like this for centuries. And, and I was just reading some scholarship in Witherington, John Gager, different ones, who talked about how Jewish the early faith was. And, and even when John Chrysostom was in 386, preached his infamous eight sermons against the Jews, uh, many scholars believe the main reason he was doing that was because there were Christians who found the, the biblical calendar beautiful and wonderful and who honored the Jewish believers in Jesus who, who still kept that. It was where, here, simple question for you. Where does the New Testament say Sunday has become the Sabbath? It doesn't. Where does the New Testament tell a Jewish believer don't observe the biblical holidays which find their fulfillment in the Messiah? It doesn't, all right? So all Messianic Jews are doing the same. We're just going back to biblical practices, that's all, and telling our Jewish community you can be a Jew and believe in Jesus. After all, it's the Jewish Messiah. He's the Jewish Messiah. He came for Jewish people first, then for the rest of the world. Why should a Jew stop being a Jew? Because they follow Jesus. Should they stop following traditional Judaism and submitting to the authority of the rabbis? Yes. Are there certain customs and traditions that they find beautiful and valuable that they want to follow? Hey, you're a traditional Jew. It's your custom, unless it's the Sabbath, to, to bury a loved one that dies within 24 hours. Very traumatic, very intense. People have to travel from different parts of the world to get there, but that's the custom. That's the tradition. Many find it to be preferable to say having a body lie in wake for days and funeral put off for a week or things like that. Is it wrong to do that? No. Why would it be wrong? So the, the issue is for many Jewish believers in Jesus to just say we're still Jews, but we don't submit to the authority of the rabbis and we differ with rabbinic rejection of Jesus, but we're still Jews. Why, why should we stop? Paul is quite explicit about that in 1 Corinthians 7. If you're called, meaning called to salvation, circumcised, don't become uncircumcised. If you're called uncircumcised, don't become circumcised. Pretty simple. Uh, let's see here. Um, okay, those are more from Tom. So let me go to one other set of questions that I posted. Uh, where is it? Here we go. Uh, what are some of the toughest objections to the faith that you encounter? And Eric posted a bunch. So let me, let's see here. Uh, okay. And thanks for the kind words, Eric. How about this one? Go all the way down towards the bottom of Eric's post. Uh, how does a community of God wrestle against power and principalities? Ephesians 6. Or would he be concerned about such a thing? What should be, we be concerned about? So my whole book, Jezebel's War with America, seeks to uncover and expose demonic activity. Is this a principality? So, so if we're looking hierarchical, that, that this is a, a, a greater power in Satan's army, one with higher authority, one with demons under his, we say his, just generically here, un, under his control, okay? Is, is that the case? Uh, it, so we're not just talking about an individual demon. We're not talking about Satan. We're talking about someone in between, all right? So if Satan was the general, you know, be a sergeant, and then maybe a demon is a private, right? Just put them in simple military terms. For the critics, I'm not trying to compare them in exact form, okay? <clears throat> so my book, Jezebel's War with America, seeks to demonstrate how a coalition of demonic forces working together in a concerted way, just as they work through Queen Jezebel in the Bible, are at work in America today— or there is a principality operating in this way. 
but it has these Jezebelic tendencies. How do folks speak of the spirit of Jezebel? Not the ghost of Queen Jezebel, but the same demonic forces or the same demonic principality that operated through Jezebel of old, operating today. So we should be aware of these things. You may go into a new region and you're going there to preach the gospel. And people said, yeah, we, we've been sharing the gospel here for years with no fruit, but we found out that missionaries have been coming here for 500 years with no fruit. Well, there's, there's some principality there. There's some stronghold there. There's something there that is resistant culturally and spiritually to the gospel in an extreme way. So what do you do? You give yourself all the more to prayer and fasting. You give yourself all the more to seeking God for the fullness of his spirit. You ask him to bring down every lie, every stronghold that stands in the way. And then you engage in preaching the gospel and speaking the truth and thereby casting down imaginations and lies. If you look, for example, uh, China, powerfully impacted by the gospel with massive revival and outpouring and maybe 100 million Chinese Christians today. You look at Korea, powerfully impacted. You started in the north and went to the south the last 100 or so years uh, with, with remarkable numbers of conversions and great impact. And you look at Japan, and, and it's, their church is like 30, 40 people, and people praying and crying out, very, very little fruit. There's something there. It seems like some type of stronghold. So what do you do? You, you, it may take many, many years but through prayer, through fasting, through seeking the face of God, through, through in, in Jesus' name, engaging in spiritual warfare to pull this down, preaching the gospel, speaking the truth, you believe that one day somehow this thing will come down. We do our best to expose those principalities and powers that work in America today, and then we fight back with the weapons of the gospel as we lay out in the last two chapters of Jezebel's War with America. All right, see you Monday. <laughs>